Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from Sebastian Feist, an inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Hang up to decline the call or to accept. Dial five now. If you wish to block any, hello. How you doing, James? This is Sebastian. The problem with me is I was ignorant, uh, young, easily impressed, pressed upon. Uh, manipulated. I was young. I didn't have the father figure and I looked up to my bigger brother and I ain't saying it's his fault. I I could have said no. Hello everyone. This is the second update episode of season two, Zealand, the untold story of Wade and Ellen Sick. In this episode, we will be hearing from Sebastian Butch Feist from Federal Prison. He recently reached out to me and said he wanted to share a couple of things. I arranged to speak with him on the telephone, and I'm going to play that audio for you now. A little bit of background first, however. Hopefully you've already listened to Season 2, Episodes 1 through 7. If not, I recommend that you do that first so you'll have the full context for my conversation with Sebastian Feist. Sebastian Feist, otherwise known as Butch Feist, was, of course, one of the three young men convicted of the murders of Wade and Ellen Zick on July 11, 1976. He was 18 years old when the crime took place. He has been in prison for 44 years for this crime, and he's scheduled to be released in May of 2020. His older brother, David, was 21 at the time. David shot and killed Wade and Ellen with a shotgun in the gravel pit just outside of the town of Zealand. Sebastian Feist shot Ellen Zick in the buttocks with a twenty-two caliber rifle. Gregory Huber, the third man convicted of this crime, was also 18 years old. He did not fire a weapon, and he was released from prison over 10 years ago. 
Sebastian's older brother Dave corresponded with me in writing for season two, but until now Sebastian has declined to speak with me. The two Feist brothers, Dave and Sebastian, are held in different prisons, but they continue to write to each other. Apparently, Dave wrote to Sebastian and told him a few things about what I had told him, what I was hearing and learning about the summer of 1976. This prompted Sebastian to reach out to me. As you will hear, he wanted to set the story straight on a couple of things. I'll tell you right now that the things he wanted to speak out about are probably not the things that are foremost on your mind about this crime. Still, I gave him an opportunity to speak his mind so that I could ask him some other questions. I asked him about Zeeland, the night of the crime, how it all happened, how drunk or stoned they were. I asked him about being on the run, getting caught at the Canadian border, why the Zicks had to be killed, what Wade and Ellen had said that night. I even asked him what he expects to do once out of prison. Finally, I asked him if he had anything to say to the family and loved ones of the Zicks. But before I play this for you, there are a couple more things I want to explain to add context to this conversation. A few months before the Zicks were killed, Sebastian's mother and stepfather brought Sebastian to Zeeland to live with his grandmother and uncle out at the Feist farm northeast of town. Another brother named Stanley, who was younger than David but older than Sebastian, was in Zeeland for a while, too. Sebastian attended high school in Zeeland, but at least according to the police report I have, he was expelled from school. In Zeeland, Sebastian became friends with Gregory Huber. You may remember from season two that Sebastian was considered to be a good farmhand and worker around Zeeland. John Reedy told us the following. A lot of farmers liked him. He was a hell of a work to younger brother. You know, and then when he dropped out of school, he had lots of jobs. You know, he was a, he was a good hand. He was a good worker. A lot of guys hire him out for whatever reason. In the spring of 1976, David Feist came to the Zeeland area. He lived and worked at first in Selby, South Dakota, a good 45-minute drive to the south. He had recently been released from jail in California for attempting to sell marijuana and a couple hits of acid to an undercover cop. About two weeks before the murders took place, Sebastian traveled with relatives to the state of Washington to visit cousins. You may also remember that when Sheriff Wiest went to the Feist farm for the first time, the boy's grandmother, Katie Feist, told him that the boys had come in in the middle of the night, grabbed all their clothes, and then sped away fast in a car. She also told him that a few days earlier, some money had gone missing in her wallet, and she thought that it was taken by Sebastian Feist. I started off by letting Sebastian Feist tell us whatever it was he wanted to set straight. Instead of me asking you a bunch of questions, I'm just going to let you say whatever you'd like to say, if that if that works, and uh, we'll go from there. All right. Well, I'd just like to mainly clear the air about that $250 my grandmother accused me of taking. There's no reason for me to lie about it now, or it wasn't then. She come up and confronted me about it when I was in jail, and I told her I didn't take it. The person that took what well, you know about me going to Washington for the crime, right? I went to watch what had happened is and her husband had three kids. They weren't working. They took me out to visit my cousins, Alex and Wayne. And when we came back, they were out there visiting, getting ready to say their goodbyes when they were in the car. And come in to say goodbye to me. And when she came in to say goodbye to me, she took the money. 
And what really bothered me is, and I didn't really think about it at the time, but what really bothered me later is she knew that I'd wind up getting blamed for it. That's what really bothered me more than anything. I do have a conscience. And the second thing is about me being expelled from high school. I was never expelled. I quit because I had too much to do. I was I was working for so many farmers, helping them. They had children of their own. They had to get bales in or plus our farm, and I just didn't think I had the time to do the school. And I figured if they might have put that down because of the fact that it dealt with some tires being flattened on a bus, that my older brother Stanley, who, who's dead, wound up as a prank, flattened a couple tires, so they might have, because I was there, I didn't do it, but because I was there, they might have used that saying that that's one reason they expelled me, but I don't remember ever being expelled from high school. I remember quitting. Yeah, Willie Wolf used to drive the bus. He was the person in the meat market there in town. But, but they had a little they had a little meat market there, and he ran the meat market. And he used to drive the bus, and he talked me into getting started, going to school, and getting on the. He'd come pick me up on the bus and do a little route. Begged me not to quit when I told him I was going to quit, and that he didn't have to come pick me up no more. But that's pretty much what it is. That's the two things I know about Dave. That he told he didn't tell me that much about what you were writing, but he told me about them two things. Them two things kind of stirred my feathers, as you might say. So I want to clear the air. I, that doesn't mean your listeners are going to believe anything I say either way, but at least they get another side of it. So you're saying Katie, your grandma, came to visit you in jail in Bismarck and asked you about that money? Yeah. Yes, that was the only time she came. She came and asked me uh, about $250 that was missing and then asked me why. I hurt them people. I told her I I didn't hurt them people. It was my brother. And she turned around and walked away on me. The look she gave me tore me up. Like I'll never forget that look. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. I just did not. The problem with me is I was ignorant, uh, young, easily impressed, pressed upon, uh, manipulated. I was young. I didn't have the father figure, and I looked up to my bigger brother, and I ain't saying he, it, it's his fault. I, I could have said no, but, yeah, I was, I, was, I was led astray in the wrong way, but... Uh, I wish I wish anything I could have just realized what kind of trouble I was getting into, and I would have stayed there. Could we just? Could you just tell us, walk us back that night when you guys drove down to South Dakota that Saturday night? Did you know this was going to happen? Did you think this was going to happen, or like how? 
How how did it all happen? Okay, well I came. Well, it started off. I met Greg and his brother in the coffee shop there in Zealand. They had a little coffee shop there for teenagers to hang out on the weekends or in the evenings. And I met them, and they started started getting along a little bit. And then he started bragging about what well, they broke into this or they did that little vandalism stuff. And I told him I said that, that I dumped coal in the coal chute in the bank. And that I know we'll probably get in that way and do a little vandalism. That's all it was going to be. It's just some vandalism, some kids playing pranks. And I don't know, you know how it is. Small town, nothing to do. You're going to sneak into the bank through the coal chute? Yeah, that's how it all started. And then when I was gone to Washington State, when I came back, they had told, told my brother about it. My brother had changed the whole scenario. It went from a simple vandalism joke to a, a serious bank robbery, and they went and showed my brother where the president of the bank lived and the whole scenario, and he come up with his own little thing about how he was going to do it. Yeah, and then we went down to, when we went down to that, that uh, weekend to Selby, and was sit, sitting there talking about it with a few other people. I would rather not mention their names because they don't need to be involved in this. But uh, when we were sitting there talking about it, uh, that's the first time I started really understanding exactly what the whole scenario was going to be. And it was more or less just, you know, rendering, bragging, uh, challenging each other, kid stuff. You know, I didn't ever really think we were going to really do it. Was there talk of killing them already when you were in Selby? No, they were talking about if somebody has to shoot, we all shoot if something went wrong. But that was that was the thing. If something went wrong, we all would have to shoot. That was the agreement we made. But like, like I said, it was, to me, it was just like random. I didn't believe I'd have to do anything like that. One one thing a lot of people want to know is like how drunk or stoned or what other drugs were you on that guys on that night, if anything? We were drinking and, and smoking weed. That was it. We were, I was pretty well out there. I mean, I still had my wish that I could have probably walked away but you know yeah that, that that played a small factor i guess according to some of the let's see I'm trying to remember according to greg's brother he says he remembers david your brother saying we're gonna do it tonight you guys went out to the huber home greg went in and got a shotgun his brother stayed there and at this point you still don't think anyone's going to die is that correct no no we were talking about it. They were talking about it when we were driving back before they even went and got the shotgun. And Greg's brother kept saying, "You guys are crazy. You guys are crazy." That was kind of just uh, fuel to the fire, saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And then when they went, did even then, I still didn't believe. I was, I was, I was pretty sure that it would, it would uh, chicken out, and we wouldn't have to go through with this. You know, I believed all the way, all the way up till we got to the to their home, and I, me and Greg were supposed to go knock on the door and say his car broke, and he was going to use the phone, and David was going to sneak around back, come in the back. So we stood out there and knocked on the door a few times. Nobody came, so I told Greg, man, I don't want to do this. So I took Greg, and we both went around back around back, and David already cut a little line in the screen door and unhooked the hook and got inside the house and was back there in what I figured was maybe a pantry because I went in looking for him. 
but I didn't want to go in the house per se. I just looked in, and he was already in the house. Because I was wanting to tell Greg, man, let's get out of here. Let's not do this. But he was already in the house, so we had, I turned around. We went back up front, and just as we went the front, Helen was at the, at the sink getting water. And Greg knocked, and she went asked her daughter. She went upstairs, got her husband, and her husband come down. And that's when Dave come out of the back. It just seemed surreal. I was just wondering if you guys thought like you were going to see who would chicken out first, and it would then we would all go home. Exactly. That's that's pretty much what it was. It was a matter of you know, I mean, uh, calling each other's bluffs, and nobody wanted to do it, and it just got way out of hand. So when you guys drove to the bank, were you up front in the car or in the back with uh, Greg and Ellen? I was in the back with I was in the back with Dave. Oh, with Dave. My understanding was when you got you and your brother went in the bank, and Greg and Ellen were in the back seat of the car behind the bank. Is that right? No, they're in the front. Because it was me and Dave that went in, and I stood in, inside, looking at the windows up front when he took the, pre- the guy to the vault. Were you scared? Yeah, I was scared to death. I was thinking that there was no getting out of this now. It's really too late. I just, I, I was hoping it didn't get any worse. That's all I could hope for. I don't think we should talk about this. When you left the bank, are you saying that Greg drove the car? Yeah. How did that go about that you guys decided to go north of town there to Alex's pit? That was decided with, when I was out in Washington. They already had that, all that figured out before I even come back. I mean, so what was the plan? To take him out there and tie him up? or? That was the plan. That was my understanding of the plan, yeah. Do you remember what Wade and Ellen Zick said that night in any of the situations in the house or the bank or out at the pit? They didn't say nothing that I remember. They just followed whatever my brother told them to do. As far as I know, they had no idea that was going to happen until after he took them down in the pit. Because when we got there and he went down there with them, he screamed up to Greg to grab the rope. Greg went to the back of the car to get open the trunk to get to get the rope, I assume. So I went back there and, and he started freaking out, talking about there ain't no rope, there ain't no rope. So then I called Dave back. I called my brother Dave back out of the pit because Greg said he's going to shoot him. He's going to shoot him. So I called him back up. He went and first, so I started screaming at him, come up, come up, I need to talk to you, come here. So when he came up there, I told him, man, we can't do this, Dave. And then he kept telling me, be cool, be cool. And so he went down there, and that's when he shot Wade. And the, the public record states that you went down with the twenty two and shot Ellen. Can you explain... No, I didn't go down. I, I stayed up there because of the fact that what he said is somebody shoots, we all shoot. I couldn't bring myself to shoot her anywhere bad, so I nicked her on the side. That's what I did. Because Greg was standing beside me, and he was supposed to shoot too, and then he decided he wasn't going to. But my brother thought I was shooting at him because I got mad at him because he wouldn't stop doing what he was going to do. Because he kept telling me, be cool, then we went back down and he shot him. I, I shot, and he jumped behind the tree because he thought I was shooting at him wasn't really an argument per se. I guess you could say I got kind of loud and, and, and mad because of the fact that I was trying to call him out of the pit to stop him from doing what he was going to do because it started re- 
you know, I sobered up real quick when I started realizing that this is really happening. He wanted to do it. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Greg was, he was up there pacing back and forth, saying he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Yeah, I can't, uh, I, I, I don't think I was in my right mind. I can't really say what I was thinking. All I was thinking of is I wanted to get out of there. And then once we got out of there, he called us down there and had us throw stuff on top of the, on top of to try to hide the body. Wound up going to, going back to the farm. And when I was at the farm, I was, I went and hugged my grandmother and told her that I was going to help my brother move. We wound up going to, just running, basically. When we got to, when we got to California and Dave stepped away for a minute, me and Greg started talking about maybe turning ourselves in, but it didn't get go any further than that. I I was wondering if you could tell us you're approaching the border to Canada. It was the middle of the night, I think. What were you guys thinking? Did you think you were going to get through, or no? There's no way. I I knew we weren't going through. I think David did too, because he crawled off in the back seat and late, act like he was going to sleep. I just had that feeling that how are we going in there? We didn't have no passports, no nothing. Actually, I I knew I knew we weren't getting away the minute that uh, it all started. I knew we were in trouble. There's no way we were getting away with it. I mean, uh, did you ever ask your brother why he felt inclined to kill them or anything like that? He said because he watched movies in the military and they said that you get sick when you do it. And he said he didn't get sick. That was his response. I couldn't believe he did it because this, this is my older brother I grew up with. And I mean, uh, I can't say he was really the kind of older brother most people would want because he was always trying to get me in trouble. Yeah, Dave was always trying to get me in trouble. Always. And I always wanted to go along because I always wanted to be, you know, go with my brothers. Mom always tried to make me stay home, and our relationship wasn't that good at all. She she took a lot out of me. None of the other kids had to suffer what I suffered. I mean, she's gone now, so I'm not going to bring all that up. But, yeah, me and my mom weren't really close-knit, you might say. And I felt like, actually, when she took me to Zealand and gave me to Grandma, I felt more like I was being dumped because they didn't ask me about it or nothing. I wasn't resentful about it. I, you know, I mean, I loved being there. That was a, probably the more most happiest time of my life was when I was there on the farm. But you felt like your mom was abandoning you, basically? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But like I said, after I was there for a while, I, I enjoyed it. I actually loved being there. Your brother said that his version of the whole that summer or whatever is that he's the kind of guy that could be talked into doing anything when he was drunk. And every time you guys were partying down there in Selby or whatever, the other guys, I assume meaning you and Huber and others, started talking about robbing a bank and it just progressed further and further until you actually did it. No, that wasn't that wasn't really true. Because we talked about vandalizing it, but he wasn't even there. And when I was gone to Washington, that's when the conversation came up. And Because when I came back, he said, why didn't you tell me you were going to do that? And I told him, I said, we weren't going to do that. We were just going to go in there and raise hell, do, do shit kids, teenage kids do. Because when I was gone, he had uh, Greg and somebody else, I can't remember who, showed him where they lived and everything and did, did the whole runabout. And they changed everything from when I was gone. So, no, that wasn't true. You know, Dave was just, 
Dave was Dave. He was just accident waiting to happen. Even when I remember back back when uh, we were younger in California, my uncle Charlie, who was married to my mom's sister Elizabeth, Aunt Meg, Aunt Be- uh, Aunt Betty, and even Charlie told mom that Dave was a problem that he's going to take somebody down with him eventually. And I was the, I do something bad was going to happen. Believe it or not, I just premonition or whatever. I didn't realize this was, but when he showed back up in South Dakota down in Selby. My understanding is that you're going to be getting out of prison soon. You want to tell us if that's true and what your plans are? Yeah, I've had somebody come up to me and tell me, oh, they finally decided to let you go, huh? I said, no, they ain't let me. I earned it. You know, I'm not the same person I was. I'm a grown man now, and I work in uh, the mental health department here in psychology, and I help a lot of the mentally disabled prisoners they got here, people that suffer from a variety of different things, bipolar, uh, paranoia, you name it. And I help out there, and I've, you know, instead of just medicating the guys and throwing them in a cell, and I try to give them a better quality of life, get them to come out, make sure they get their meals, and take their call-outs. I've actually got a little empathy for people, and that's that's what earned me my parole. I've saved, I intervened about 12 suicide attempts. Two of them were really serious. The other ones were fake. They, they were just cries for help. But yeah, that's, yeah I, I earned my, my uh, release. What do, you, what do you plan on doing when you get out? Uh, hopefully I can get me a furniture job because that's what I'm pretty good at. I did that for like almost 14 years when I was in Leavenworth. I'm pretty good at doing custom-made furniture or factory floor furniture. Did everything from the beginning to the end of the factory, from cutting the wood to putting it in a box after it's a finished product. And uh, Dave said you'd be paroled right there in Arizona, is that correct? Yeah, I recommend stay here in Arizona because I didn't want to go back up north. How so? I didn't know well, I didn't know what my welcome would be, so I know we weren't very popular with what we did, so I figured it'd be better for me to, and my chances of finding work and staying out of trouble would probably be better right here. You think there's any risk of you getting in trouble? No, I'm talking about somebody coming at me behind knowing who I am and what happened. Retaliation or whatever. So you're a little concerned about someone like in North Dakota going after you? No, I just didn't want to have to deal with it. That I don't know what my temper would be like or anything of being confronted. So to avoid all that, I just, I just decided, no, I didn't want to go. One more thing I'd like to say just for the record. Uh, David told me that... Uh, before my mom passed, she said that she was disappointed that I was getting out of prison. He heard that mom was mad that I was getting out. And I find that ironic because as far as I know, we never had any problems because we communicated pretty good. Probably the first five, six years I was in prison, she actually said, I love you to me. It messed me up so bad I hung up on her. But, yeah, I, I, all I can think about what I tell Dave, whenever I email him, I always tell him, I said, hell, when I get out. One thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get a hold of mom and call her and let her know I'm out. And I loved her. Then, then he turned around and told me that. I was like, damn, that's, that's harsh. I did see that your name and David's name are not listed in your mother's obituary when she passed away about a month ago. Did you know that? Yeah, I know that. I didn't even get it. That's why. That's another reason why I prefer not to go back. His family doesn't want, want anything to do with me, so I, I'll honor that and leave them, uh, leave them alone.
Well, let, let, let me jump to my next question then. You said you learned a little bit about empathy for people while, while in prison. What, 44 years now? Yeah. I thought I'd ask you, is there anything you would like to say either to teenagers or to the family and loved ones of the Zix? Uh, sure. Uh, for starters, I'd like to let any kids out there know that, you know, why give up your freedom and, and your whole life for for something that's going to wind you up in prison? All I can think about when I was in here is how how and if I'll live to get out. I didn't think I'd make it. I I really didn't. But prison ain't no place to want to be. It's, you look at, okay, well, all the people you look, look up to, your peers or you guys you think about are great, and they wind up in here, in here they're nobody. You know, I mean, they're just like uh, anybody else. You still have it in your ability, no matter what, to, to say no and to think about, you know, it, it would have been great if somebody would have stopped told me, said, hey, this is what's going to happen. This is what you got to lose. Because I didn't think about that. And that's that's what I would advise a kid to do is at least take the time and pause and think about what you're getting ready to get into. The consequences. If I understood the consequences better, I probably would have never done this. Well, I, no, probably. I know I wouldn't have done this. You know, hindsight's great, but, you know what I mean? If somebody would have told me, hey, this is what you got to lose, you're going you're gonna, to, you're leaving the farm, you're not going to be there to help out, you're, all this, and I, I most likely would have said, no, I can't do that. Right. But you were more concerned about no, I, not being the chicken of the group or something? I mean, how long are you going to be mad at me if I if I tell you, no, I'm not doing that? You might be mad at me for a while, call me chicken or whatever, but for how long? That ain't going to last very long. Not as long as 44 years. And as for the the family, uh, I, I, there's nothing I could ever really say that apologize and take back what I took away from them. You know, it's I think about that all the time, and I'm like, man, I, I, I just... Uh, it's hard to for I can't forgive myself for it, but it, so how would I ask somebody else to forgive me for it? It's 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 just a hard pot pill to swallow. So yeah, I guess I'm I'm partially to blame for or not partially I am to blame for the scenario that when that, that happened. But yeah, I would uh, all I can say is I'm deeply sorry for what I, what, what I put them through, as well as my family. Because I mentioned to you earlier that we are, you know, I guess I, I was pretty selfish because I wasn't thinking about nobody. And if I really had done that and thought of other people besides myself, yeah, I would have, uh, it had been probably a different story. If you would like to see a video of Sebastian Feist, aged 18, being led into the county jail after his capture, support Dakota Spotlight by becoming a patron at dakotaspotlight.com. Dakota Spotlight is produced solely by myself at Everything Midwestern LLC in the state of North Dakota. And I'm going far away. Permission to use the songs North Dakota, Mile Marker, Cold Black River, and others granted generously by Peter Hicks, performed by Sleepy Driver. Check out and support Sleepy Driver's music on Spotify or at sleepydriver.bandcamp.com where you can purchase a special Dakota Spotlight Season 2 digital collection with the music from this season. 
See the link in the show notes or at dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you, Peter Hicks and Sleepy Driver. To God Be the Glory, sung by the Sunday School children at St. Peter's Church, Chafee, North Dakota, three miles from Wade Zick's childhood home. To see photographs, videos, and other premium content, and to support this project all at the same time, please visit dakotaspotlight.com. My email is dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm always looking for the next story. Do you know what that story should be? Thank you so much for listening and for coming along with me to North Dakota. And I'm bound for North Dakota To where they got more sky than ground Cause I'm tired of California And that dirty little town Yeah, I'm bound for North Dakota To where silence is the sound And I wanna take you with me Cause I like your kind around I'm sleeping in my car With the radio on and the windows down And I'm up before the dawn Before this heartache gets the best of me I'm gone and moving on from that city Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.